Good morning, diners and travelers. You're listening to On the Menu with Ann and Peter Haig. And boy, do we have a lot to get to today. Uh, we're a little slow at getting this news out, but I want to, uh, for those of you who are horrified at the idea of presenting your turkey on Thanksgiving, um, which is like everybody's favorite holiday, right? <laughs> um, I just, if you're in the Pittsburgh area, our good chef friend Christian Frangiatis at Spork Pit um, is offering smoked turkeys from his custom Texas is smoker. This, 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 this is going to be great. This is the easy way to get Thanksgiving oh, dinner on is, the table. This is fabulous. And so you go to the Spork Pit Pittsburgh website and you get a 13 pound spatchcock turkey. $107 plus tax, and it comes with a quart of, listen to this, cranberry pepita sage stuffing and a quart of foie gras gravy. <laughs> yeah, anyhow. And you, you, get, you can get pumpkin pie too. You can also get pumpkin, the eight slice pumpkin pie, and you pretty much have your, throw in a few Brussels sprouts or you, if you really intend on, Yams with marshmallows, <laughs> and you're done. You got it. Nice bottle of, of red, right, Rabbit? Yeah, ex- exactly. So, anyhow, to find out how you get this, uh, order this, go on this website, and you can pick up the, the yeah, thing the, hot yeah, we day. Do, or the we don't. Day we don't actually. We don't actually have the link yet It'll be on for, the for you to go and order, but but we'll we'll we'll, we'll get it there as soon as we can. Yeah, I mean, this turkey's burned. I used now, to in, do that. in the in the meantime, we're we're finishing up. We're finishing up food, food on, on the edge, edge 2019. Yeah. And then we've got some more Italian stuff just to finish up, just just in case you you have a taste in that direction for today. <laughs> I would have anyway, to get to. Anyway, yeah. we're, we're we're starting out in food on the edge in Galway, and yeah. who's up? And Romy Gill. Romy Romy Gill, who is. Of Indian extraction, but she has a a an Indian restaurant in Bristol, in the yeah. southwest of England, and, well, and we the, go to Bristol a lot, so that's going to be uh, helpful. And the, and the news we can't reveal entirely yet that she's going to be opening a restaurant in London very soon, but we don't know any details. Of course, we'll bring that to you as soon as we have it. Yeah, very impressive. So, so anyway, here's here's Romy, who not only is a fine chef, she also has a fine sense of humour. Yeah, she does. <laughs> Romy Gill, we always love interviewing successful women chefs. And um, if somebody wrote that, I'd question that because <laughs> basically it's successful chefs, right? Yes. Okay, but you did get an award, which they noted that you were female, the first, what, in Great Britain? First Indian female chef to refi- receive an MBE, which is a member of British... Oh, Empire. Yeah, his um, was. Yes, so the hospitality industry. And coming from a small town and, and to receive that, I've never dreamt of winning awards and getting that from the Queen on her 90th birthday oh, wow. was a more um, something which my daughters were super excited about because, you know, I had restaurant and I have so many bills coming in and out all the time I left a letter on the side and I didn't want to open because I thought that was another bill and when my daughter came and she opened it and she was jumping up and down and uh, it was I rang the the cabinet office three times if that award was really for me 
because I just think that I wanted to share food with people, share the culture I come from, um, uh, you know, the the things I went through in my journey and how I became what I am today. Uh, I never thought in my entire life or million years that I would win an award. I mean, it's quite important award and I really enjoyed that. Tell us a little about the journey. Um, I came to UK when I was 22 years old and I wanted to kind of study uh, here and um, I kind of, uh, not until not until I never wanted to speak about it, but I also wanted to other people to understand what I went through. So my first marriage was very abusive marriage and I went through really bad time of my life and then how I came out of it and I am the woman I am today is because of my my now husband and my daughters who people like Alan Jenkins people like Sheila Dillon who's been uh, amazing people in my life who's helped me through this journey you know I work I like working with men and women it's something I think they all bring something to you so my life and and opening the restaurant I'm a self-taught chef so opening a restaurant um, and not going to Culinary Institute again you're labeled as a woman who's just woken up and want to open a restaurant so that was and banks refused the loan uh, so there were so there were a lot of things that was against me but I was not the woman to give up so uh, your first restaurant is in Bristol but you are in the process of taking a very big step I am I want We'll be opening another restaurant in nine months, maybe like a baby. <laughs> so um, we'll be opening in London, so keep an eye on that. And um, I know it's craziness, but you, we all have to do some crazy things in life. This is one life, and you choose to do it. And I, I love feeding people, and that's what I do. And I, I want people to enjoy the culture. Indian food is not just Indian. It's, a, it's regional food. It's food from different parts of India. So I want people to enjoy that. And, and, and what and what part of Indian cuisine is your specialty? So my parents are from North India. Sadly, my mum passed away this year. So the book Zaika is in memory, homage of my mum. So my parents are from Punjab, and I, um, my dad worked in a steel plant in East India, which is West Bengal. So I'm born and brought up there. People came from all over India to work there. So my cuisine is very much influences of different people, but it's very much Punjabi and Bengali food. And about this book, you're about to embark on a, um, a book tour uh, with the, in the United States for Tell us about uh, Zaika. Um, Zaika is very close to my heart because it's the recipes that mom would cook for me. Um, she would, you know, India is a big country and you take long train journeys and mom would make this beautiful picnics and we would share with other people on the train journey. So the book is a reflection of what my mom would do for us and then what I learned in this, in UK. So the recipes are that and, and the recipes do work and Zaika means flavor. So I am going uh, next year to tour, um, I'm cooking in James Beard House in February, then I'm going to, um, Philadelphia to do another culinary tour and then ending up in LA um, in a restaurant to cook and sign my book. Has being in the UK for so long influenced your style of cooking at all? 
Oh, definitely, because the in the spices, of course, come from India, but the ingredients that I use now are from this country, and I was brought up in very local, seasonal ingredients, um, and and that's what I still do. I, I all my ingredients are from Southwest. It does not go from anywhere else. So it's very much influence of British. I, that's why I call myself British Indian chef. Yes. Well, you're amazing. I mean, I don't know what secrets are, have I not peeled back a layer to reveal yet. <laughs> Any secret you want to reveal? Um, not really. Running. I'm 47 years old and my mom of two aged teenagers and I, I'm, I'm bonkers. I don't know if you understand bonkers. Crazy. Um, crazy as in I did my first New York, first marathon was in New York in 2011. Since then I have done 40 half marathons and, and five marathons. So I am a crazy in that way. <laughs> bon bon bonkers is right. We, we, sh we should Listeners note, we are actually recording this interview in Ireland, which is not the same country. <laughs> and we, and we, do, we do know that. We just kind of slipped up there. And, but let's put, let's put in a little plug for your current hometown, because it's really a rather special place. Bristol, in the county of Gloucestershire, is really a... a it's a destination that you can use along the way, going to Cornwall, for example, and Devon in the west, which, which we have done many times because we have relatives there. But do you have a couple of moments to plug your home city? Um, the, re the reason I really like Bristol or South Gloucestershire where I live and part of Bristol is because all the chefs come together. Um, it's about coming together and helping each other. It's a small city. We help each other. We look after each other in Southwest. It's not like in London. It's not a rat race. It's not about who you are. It's about how we can help you, you know? Um, so I, I love Bristol. Bristol is like a hometown. I grew up in India. It's my homeland. So it's, um, I'm very proud to be part of call as a Bristolian maybe yes I love Bristol and please do come it's amazing city it's a destination place for people who love eating it's beautiful you can go to Devon which is beautiful I've just come I've just come on Saturday from Devon I was doing a food festival in Dartmouth so and then you go to you know Cornwall which is St. Ives and Padstow from Rickstein so it's an amazing country I live in thank you we're, we're actually going to be passing by whether we can pass through, I'm not sure, in December, because we were spending Christmas in Cornwall. So, 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 so maybe, listen, maybe, maybe we'll make that work, and we'll bring you a report directly from Romy's restaurant in Bristol. Well, just come, and if you can't, and you can come to James Beard House, I can invite you. <laughs> and, and where, do, are you in a position yet to reveal where your London restaurant is actually going to be? Not really. I'm, told, I'm not allowed to say yet. <laughs> no, I'm sure, I'm, I understand we should. That's why I paraphrased it the way I did. Sweetheart? Yes. Well, I just can add goodbye to see you again. I don't know how to say that um, in anything but English, but <laughs> until we meet again. Thank you. I can say it in Hindi or in, 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 in Urdu. It's good. Okay. <laughs> goodbye. Good. Thank you for having Thank me. Thank you so much, Rainy. Lots of success for you. Oh, thank you so much. I'll see you soon.
Next up, we have, uh, uh, well, she's sort of hard to classify, um, Arlene Stein. Well, she is the founder and executive director of the Terroir Symposium. Um, but she's really basically a, a, about networking, education, inspiration. So she fits really pretty well into this whole theme of, uh, of food on the edge because it's kind of what's coming up. But she's, she's living in Berlin which is a fine city. So we have representation from all over the globe at this thing. Anyhow, uh, listen, listen to Arlene. Yes, we're, we're going to be talking to Arlene Stein, who is a multicultural in her own right. <laughs> um, Arlene, you gave such a... Um, uh, I don't know what the term to describe it is. I mean, it was familiar... Yet it brought it all together and was very informative, defining all these different strands of information that we had in our head. Can you give us a brief synopsis of what you were talking about? Here. The essence of the conversation is really about looking at our cultural anthropology and our histories, our past histories, to understand who we are and where we've come from, but more importantly, to break down the notion that we are one singular identity and that we have these shared histories, which include commonalities, and that's represented in the foodstuffs that we eat. So, you know, I began the conversation by talking about the importance of trade and migration because it's fundamentally how our food system has shifted. And so before the age of discovery, you know, our... Um, uh, the foods that we ate were primarily the native foodstuffs of the space. So whether we settled in agricultural places or we settled in coastal areas, we ate the foods that were native or indigenous to that region. Um, once we started traveling, we brought our foodstuffs with us. We brought our traditions, our techniques, our ingredients, and we shared those. Uh, sometimes we imposed them. <laughs> but either way, they, they, they shifted. And the most remarkable uh, shift was the discovery of North America by Christopher Columbus this year of 1491, which is marked as the age of discovery. I mean, we know now that Christopher Columbus did not discover America. In fact, he died not knowing that he'd actually arrived in North America. It was actually the Caribbean. Um, but the point is a marker in terms of how food was shifted, food became a commodity, and it indelibly changed everything in the way that we eat or what we consider our national treasures. So I use the example of, you know, what is the Italian without the tomato, which of course is from South America, or what is the Irish without the potato, which is of course from Peru. And so we can't, it's important to remember our past so that we don't repeat those mistakes for our future. It's important to remember our past so we can be grounded in the heritage of the things and respect and honor the traditions that have come before us. Oh, so you're you're basically saying that um, to know um, the diverse elements uh, is to also bring people together. That's not always true. Well, I think that um, creating a better understanding of our food systems and the way that they work and those commonalities that we share is an opportunity for us to actually bring people closer together. It creates a relationship and it speaks to our humanness when we want to understand other people so that we can actually help support them. And I think the opportunity that we have as food leaders in terms of becoming more familiar with the history of our foodstuffs is to understand how to make especially our rural producers more 
resilient by actually um, supporting them in their endeavors through agriculture. And if we are the stewards of the food system, being the people that cook and eat and uh, prescribe, you know, in our world, food is our world, then the basis of that is the people who bring the food from the soil, and we need to ensure their sustainability. Um, they, we use a um, gastro diplomacy in another way. Um, we have been, at least in the States, is uh, with an influx of immigrants, um, aside from a current horrible situation with uh, uh, Donald Trump, um, is that you, when you have an immigrant community, immigrant group moving into a community, um, there are special dinners. It's the act of eating together that seems to be the, the link to, to acceptance and integration. So gastrodiplomacy, in my opinion, has three distinct pillars. One is uh, the direct connection to people, so convening people around a table to create a conversation and a dialogue. That's the human aspect. The second is introducing people to your native foods, your techniques and your traditions, because that helps explain who you are. And it also helps people become more familiar and at ease with who you are. And so that's the relationship that immigrants often have in a place because they bring those traditions and techniques with them. And then the third thing is, as I often focus on, is then looking back to our shared histories and our commonalities to see how more, how, how much more alike we are than we think and how much more connected we've all been and using food as a way to explore that. Um, the thing I like best about you is you're optimistic. <laughs> so I, I thank you for your talk and I thank you for talking to us about it. And, uh... and we're taking a break, but we'll be right back. Podcasting services for On The Menu Radio are provided by ASP Station, www.aspstation.net. Welcome back. Um, Another nice thing about this uh, Food on the Edge conference or symposium is that it has a little product showcase, I mean, showcasing products of, big, of big, Ireland. Big product showcase. Oh, it's fabulous. And, um, and we hang out there and, and get oysters. I mean, there's nothing more fantastic than these Irish oysters. Um, we get oysters in the half shell. But, but, but we found... We get, I like bread, Irish yeah, bread. I like that. But we found another unexpected treat. I followed in, my nose. <laughs> in, 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 in one corner of the showcase. Yeah. You, you, would, you, you won't believe it, but do believe it. Gaelic escargot. <laughs> Sna- <laughs> snails, snails grown in the Irish Republic. And they were, they were cooking them right there. And that's why I said I followed my nose. I could smell the garlic across the room, and then where they were great. The funny, the funniest thing is that the the, the couple who, who produced these actually started out growing snails in their bedroom. <laughs> well, listen they, to their interview. They, they developed they developed further since then, but but it's it was kind of a, a very pleasant and a very interesting surprise. I'm sure you, I'm sure you enjoy the encounter. Hello, Eva Milka and 
Owen Jenkinson. Uh, good morning. Good afternoon, Eva. Yeah, okay. <laughs> and, and guess what? We're, we're in Ireland, so of course we're talking about snails. Ha ha. <laughs> snails not associated with Ireland that we knew about. Owen, tell, tell us how it happened. So uh, we loved we loved well, eating. Mm -hmm. So uh, we loved eating snails, and we weren't able to uh, to get them in Ireland. So we started rearing them for ourselves uh, in our one bedroom apartment in plastic boxes. Mm -hmm. Exactly, and Eva did a little bit of market research, and we discovered there's a huge uh, international market out there. So it's kind of gone gone from there. We're seven seven years down the road now. Now, do you, do you need to have a day job to, to, to farm snails in Ireland? I don't, but uh, Owen does uh, a bit of uh, bakery on the site. Bakery. Yeah, okay. baking on the site, yeah. Okay, and, and it, it's, it's a big business, a relatively big business for you, Owen. I think you said you have customers all over the world. Well, there's there's a huge international demand for demand for them. We're we're looking at new, at new mar at new markets uh, all all the time. Um. Well, basically, the, the the three biggest markets in Europe are French, Italian, and Spanish. If you look at outside Europe, um, well, the French is always the biggest one. But believe it or not, US came as the second biggest market for escargot, and then uh, followed by uh, Canada and uh, and Japan. So it's amazing to see what's happening uh, on the market at the moment. And there are so many reasons why there is such a demand for uh, snails. And first one is uh, global warming. Global warming is working in our favor in Ireland because we get uh, warmer summers every summer and, and the snails are nocturnal animals they eat at night and they eat much better when the nights are warmer so they grow faster but um, uh, global warming is not working in a favor for countries like Spain uh, or Italy which are by the way two out of three biggest markets in Europe because in Spain and Italy it's becoming too hot to farm snails uh, so even if you look at the uh, Spanish uh, snail farming seven snail farms closed down recently due to the massive heat waves uh, they are getting so so Ireland is becoming ideal country to farm them and as well as that I don't know if you knew but every single part of the snail is being used on the market at the moment so if you look at this small little creature which we by the way in Ireland treat as a pest every single part is being used and I'm talking about meat for the food uh, consumption for the human consumption you're talking about uh, snail eggs to produce snail caviar, which, by the way, is one of the most expensive foods in the world. Then you have a mucus, so snail slime is being extensively used in cosmetic and pharmaceutical industries, and the shell it can be used as a fertilizer because it's uh, uh, full of calcium. That's right. So there's so much going on on the market, and it's such a new and interesting industry here in Ireland uh, for us. Uh, I was researching a book about snails, and um, and I got dis discouraged and never finished it because there were so many people uh, pleading for information, like from South America, and they, it's not that easy to raise snails, and these people were, were really frustrated, and I got depressed, and I stopped writing the book. But it's hard, even though the Romans originally farmed snails. What's so hard about it? 
So every country has its own system to farm snails, and uh, when we started farming snails, we were foolish by thinking that we can just copy and paste already existing breeding technique from other European country. And because I, I'm a Polish girl, and snail farming in Poland is successfully up and running in Poland for the last 20 years, we thought that if we go to Poland and train in Poland, we'll be able to bring this knowledge back to Ireland. But it didn't work this way. We failed on the breeding method, or Polish breeding method because the uh, the weather in Ireland is so much uh, different. Um, so then in the, uh, in the second year, we've tried what they do in Italy. They didn't work for us as well. And we've tried what they do in France, and they didn't work for us either. So you can just imagine the amount of mistake we've made. But we had to really develop our own breeding system to suit the Irish weather conditions, because there's no other way to do it. Uh, and once you know what you're doing, the, the, it's very simple, really. Uh, it's not a rocket science. You have to learn um, about everything about animal, how the animal reacts, what the animal needs, and uh, put it into a package to suit your climate conditions. So I believe that uh, snail farming can be done all around the world if you had the right system in place. But it took us uh, four years to develop a breeding method. Yeah, So it was like a trial and error. And even myself, I love calling myself pioneer and the mother of snail farming in Ireland because we were first in Ireland to farm snails. The truth is that we were really guinea pigs because there was nobody to learn from. Uh, so yeah, we survived the initial four years. And now, once you know what you're doing, you can fly through the cycle, really and truly. So it's so exciting. You don't get the least bit, bit excited about this, do you, Eva? I beg your pardon? You don't get the least bit excited about this. No. <laughs> oh, joking. Mm -hmm. Yeah, of course, yes. <laughs> no. You, uh, when, when, we, when we spoke earlier, Owen, you, you said you do sell a very large percentage of your output overseas. What's availability like for Gaelic escargot around the world? I mean, how, how do people find out it's available in my country or it's not available in my country or can I order them in Ireland and have them shipped to me? You know, what's, what's the deal? So uh, uh, our produce is available world, worldwide through, um, uh, through our farm, so directly from our farm. But we sell um, uh, snails in small 140-gram jars uh, to public uh, with 18-month shelf life. Unfortunately, we don't sell any fresh snails worldwide. All the fresh snails are available um, uh, here in Ireland only, uh, purely as a, for the quality control purpose. Yeah, and uh, you can uh, reach us on www.gaeligescargo.com. Well, well, thank you so, thank you so much for, for joining us. I know you you have a stand in the exhibit here at uh, 14, 9, 2019. So let's let you go back and do some business. In the meantime, thank you so much for joining us. Thank you so much, Peter. It was a pleasure. Well, we now turn our attention to um, Dennis Levitol, a guy who loves to hang off of cliffs. I mean, it's just, it takes your breath away to watch him rock climbing. It's just he scary, isn't it? He, did, he didn't do it on purpose. And he, I think he, <laughs> feels, he feels like a very lucky guy. Yeah. But, but he, he's, he's got people coming for his pizza from, from miles 
Yeah. I guess he kil- thinks he kilo- thinks the kilometers kilometers around. He's a pizza maker, pizzaiola, and he believes that pizza can unite the world. And, <laughs> and he's got a whole, whole lot of interesting ingredients to add to pizza that you can oh, yeah. try, try adding yourself. So anyway, here's here's, here's, here's Dennis. Dennis. <laughs> Buongiorno, mi piace molto la pizza, <laughs> pizza creativa. <laughs> mi piace my uh, prowess are Italian, see? <laughs> um, my parents. Uh, oh, I'm talking. <laughs> we, we were really impressed by, by a presentation today by uh, Dennis Lovatel who is a third-generation pizza maker. Uh, the pizzeria is Pizzeria da Ezio, named after his father, who was also a pizzaiolo. And um, he has a... First of all, let me say, Dennis, that you are at the moment, globally, there seems to be such an explosion of love for pizza and especially for creative pizza. Did you know this until recently or not? Okay, then, no, it's uh, a long time. Okay, a long time depends. Ten years ago, I started this uh, creative pizza is going up and up in the market. But uh, I think it's only to understand what is creative. Creative, by my point of view, is uh, to represent uh, local ingredients and to give the best uh, uh, emotion with my ingredients for the customers. So when the customers come to my pizzeria, they 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 need to feel uh, my homeland and my passion through the pizza. So creative is a, a word they can use in different contexts. No? So in my context is to represent my homeland and my passion and my view of uh, the nature, the environment that, that I have in my in my city, my t- in a small town, not a city, it's a small town. And the small town is in the Dolomites, which also is becoming a popular destination, global destination now. Describe the Dolomite region. What's special? What is special about it? Dolomite region, we, I'm living one hour from Cortina d'Ampezzo. This is a very famous uh, ski, resort, ski area, but uh, we have also uh, UNESCO heritage that is the Three Peaks Lavaredo. And uh, so it's an uh, amazing area because we have green field and uh, from the green field start these uh, big stones, big mountains. When we have the sun, they become orange. So it's uh, quite uh, romantic <laughs> also. But uh, it's also uh, where I born and where I uh, start uh, to think about my uh, environment and my passion, like free, free climbing, like uh, mountain sports. So I love uh, extreme sports. And uh, so it's... Uh, is a part of me, the mountain. So, I, I, it's difficult for me to think about another place. You, you talked in your presentation about an uh, an accident yeah. in the mountains, and uh, that what, what recovering from that, being able being able to be rescued, 
became a very special part of your life, didn't it? Yes, I was uh, 24 years old and uh, do the mountain climbing accident. I spent two, two days uh, and suspended on the air only with one rope in the big wall of uh, called Civetta Mountains. And uh, the emergency, uh, due to the weather condition, the bad weather condition, the emergency helicopter stopped the mission to rescue me. So I spent two nights only with one rope. <laughs> So the, the weather was really bad, and uh, after two nights, I started to get uh, hypothermia. Oh, okay. Yes, yeah, so um, only last night I heard some voices, and uh, I felt a hand grab mine and bring me to safety. Uh, so it was a, a really amazing experience for me. Yeah, so I changed my, my view of with the nature and with the environment. I never underestimate the environment, so uh, it changed also my life, uh, and now I learn an important uh, word that will become the basis for my professional work in, in, in my life, that is respect. So respect for me is now, for respect for the nature is uh, the most important thing, this is the reason because I start to create, uh, to give a present to to the to the environment for to give me a life, <laughs> to one one chance, one chance, and uh, so this is the reason because I start to show my homeland in my on, on the top of my pizza. Build us one of your pizzas, because there were some very unusual ingredients, herbs and things like that that. You don't find in a Neapolitan pizza, certainly. So build, build me one from the, from the, if you like, the flour up, and, w and one, what I'll get for my family to eat. Okay, so um, uh, at first, I in my pizza, um, in my dough, I use a uh, natural spring water from the Dolomites. This is really important because it contains some mineral salt. So I, I don't put salt inside my dough because they contain enough salt, the mineral water. So it's also healthy pizza. Then I use our higher quality organic flour from a meal, very close to me, uh, with uh, a lot of uh, fiber. Uh, so at the end, uh, from the dough, we have a special dough because we use also for the sapidity, I given the sapidity or the pizza sapidity thanks to some herbs, wild herbs that I put on the I sprinkle over the top of the crunch, so, no, the crust. Sorry, uh, so uh, no, crunch is very big. Crunch is my uh, my pizza is crunch, it's crisp, very thin, very light. I use only 170 grams of uh, weight, so. Uh, I thanks to a nutritionist, I'm studying also a perfect balance from protein, carbohydrate, and everything for the well-being of my clients. So at the end, I think I give, I tell you my which is my favorite pizza is uh, with the tomato sauce, um, burrata is a like burrata, you know burrata, okay, and then um, um, tomatoes confit. Tomatoes confit, oliven from Taja, is Gen Genova, is a special oliven, and then uh, nuts. Nuts? Yes, yes, yes. 
So as the Nazis give us a, a crunch together with the with the burrata is a mix of a crunch and uh, yeah toasted nut. Oh, is my, from my area. So we are we are working only with the product from my area. So everything is is available in the nature I use. So we say the best cookbook has been written from the nature. <laughs> it sounds to me like a cookbook is coming next. Oh, it should be a dream. <laughs> Maybe one time in my life I would like to do something like this. Maybe, I don't know, but uh, we can plan. <laughs> I hope so. So, all of your customers are local. You don't do any marketing on the internet or anything, no ordering? No, um, at the end, uh, my customers come also from outside because now... Thanks to our philosophy, we are a destination point. So, because we live, uh, my pizzeria is in this really small town, so it's not possible to survive with a local uh, customer. But uh, they come from every cities from outside uh, my town, so also from one hour to one hours by car. So, is uh, for me is a great success to to reach new customer from outside. And they respect uh, my philosophy and my pizza for what is behind the, the pizza. Niente, the internet. <laughs> Online? Yeah, yeah, yeah sure. Uh, we use uh, also internet because, of course, uh, I like uh, to take a picture of, uh, of my pizza because um, I studied my pizza not only, all, yes, for the, for the feeling, for the taste, but also for the colors, because, uh, for example, in summertime, I use flowers, wild herbs that I find in my in the forest. In the so in the autumn, I use uh, yellow, brown color and green color because they correspond of the color of the nature in in autumn. Well. I really would like a piece of this. <laughs> At least you can send me pictures. It occurs to me that Naples might be in trouble. <laughs> are, are you planning to conquer the world of pizza? No, no, I want to reach only the customer that love my philosophy, nothing else. Well, well, we love it, and, and I want to see those pictures. Uh, <laughs> grazie, grazie mille. Ciao, ciao. Grazie, thank you. That's good. Good. You were uh, One evening we, we had a dinner at uh, Il Vicolo. We, we should quickly point out we're, we're staying with Italian. We're, we're, yeah, we're well, we're still we're in, in Galway, and it's not an Irish restaurant. It's actually an Italian restaurant, and it's, it's owned by uh, J.P. McMahon's brother, who J.P. is, of course, the organizer of folks. So that's that connection. It's in Galway. And then we're going to jump to our friend uh, Katie Parla, who actually wasn't even that folk, but she 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 lives in Rome and she writes about um, Italian and, restaurants. And, and, we, and we caught up with her in Pittsburgh. And yeah. So. 
so that's the so that's, so that's the connection. Just so in case, you're, just in case you're trying to figure it out. <laughs> but but here's Ma- Megan Nolan, who at 25 years old is the head chef at El Vico. El Vico. Well, I, I have just been sated, and I can say that very happily, because uh, we're at this restaurant, Il Vicolo? Il Vicolo, yeah. Um, which we have different translations for, but that's okay, because um, I like all that Italian. Okay. But at any rate, um, I was starved, and uh, uh, your staff was so wonderful. Particularly, I had a uh, server from um, Emilio Romano, I think. Piemonte. Oh, Piemonte. Yeah. But anyhow, so we got food right away. We continued and we ate and ate, we ate and ate, we ate and actually a lot. Um, so, but we're now going to interview the chef, who's Megan Nolan. And Nolan is like a dear a family friend of mine, um, but she is not. Uh, this is all big, very wandering, and Peter's looking at me very strangely. <laughs> but what we're going to do is we're going to talk about, first of all, where does Megan come from? Because she is a superlative chef. The food was so good. Megan, I loved it. Thank you very much. So, yeah, it's always good to get good feedback, you know. It makes what I do worthwhile. I mean, this restaurant is very popular but you are the um you are the mainstay of it because you cook it yeah absolutely i mean i'm very lucky i like i get on very well with the owner he's very good to me so it's a, it's a good balance between like his ideas and and putting them into reality like we work very closely on the menu together and as i told you before the interview we we tend to change our menu every six to eight weeks so that it's kept seasonal which is exciting for me it's exciting for my team because we come up with new ideas we see what what has been selling, what's not been selling, and basically look at food trends and just go from there. Well, you know, I mean, we called you out before we ordered and um, asked you questions, and you had all these really great answers to who should I order this, should I order that. Lots of people ask you that, and how do you respond? You responded to us. I think, pretty straightforwardly. But people do it to you all the time. How do you respond? Well, I mean, it's all down to people's taste. Like, I can tell from the menu what's been selling and, you know, what kind of comes to the forefront. But at the end of the day, it all comes down to taste. Like, a lot of people aren't fans of seafood. So, But, I mean, we've got a good range of, range on the menu, so it's kind of easy to choose for individuals just by asking some easy questions you know do you prefer veg would you like something cold are you really hungry you know you can kind of choose from there now how did you get into this business where are you from uh, i'm originally from county clare so i'm from Kilrush, a small town that's about 30 miles west of venice um i actually kind of stumbled into cooking i originally wanted to be an english and irish teacher and I started my degree, uh, so I did my degree in English and Irish here in Galway in NUIG, which is the main university. And basically while I was there doing my degree, I was cooking in a, in a restaurant basically to fund it. And then finished my degree and realized that I wanted to be a chef permanently. So I ended up taking two years out to basically get money. I was working three jobs to pay for college. And then I saved money and I went back to college. I did my culinary degree with business here in GMIT in Galway as well. And I finished that two a year ago. So I graduated from college a year ago. 
no, I mean, we're finally coming to the realization that it's been a pretty crappy situation for women in, in this industry. Uh, uh, beyond in the United States, has been bad. How bad has it been in Ireland? To be honest, I've never really had a bad experience in Ireland. I mean, I think it's kind of like it's always interesting to me when I meet people and they don't realize that the head chef is a woman. I just love that that shock that they get in their face. And especially because I'm only 25, I guess. Yeah, I get I get a lot of reactions like, wow, you're really young. But I mean, I think it's a testament to to just people's persistence like I mean I, I wanted this so bad so I just I tried my hardest and I worked and, and I just I love that look of shock on their face when they realize how young I am as well but I think like I've never had a bad experience in Ireland I've been very very lucky in London I was in London for nine months um, as part of my college and I did see it there more so that there was a lot of like negativity towards women and just associating them with drama in the kitchen and that's not necessarily the truth you know like my, my team is, is all men apart from myself but I work with some of the best female chefs in Ireland and I think it's nice to have diversity in a kitchen it balances everything out and I think it, it works well having a mixed kitchen Do you have a lot of kitchen heroes? I mean, we're, we're here in Ireland for Food on the Edge which is going to bring more chefs and food personalities than you can poke a stick at but who, who in particular should we look out for while we're in the next two days? Um, I mean, there's obviously there's some ama amazing, amazing chefs of food on the edge. Like it amazes me every year the lineup, as they, as they say, just gets better and better. But m one of my old head chefs is actually speaking on Tuesday, Adam Kavanagh. He, I, I worked under him here. I was his sous chef for a year before I went to London, and he is fantastic. Like he went to Helsinki, he worked with Sasu Lakinen, who is also there. He's amazing as well. I just think his food is really, yeah, his Sasu is brilliant. Like, but Adam worked under Sasu for two years nearly in Aura. Um, first as chef and sommelier, and then Aura. And basically, the two of them will be my main, my main people that I look to. Like Adam's so supportive of me still. Like he, he actually came into the restaurant two months ago for food, so we stay, stayed really, really close. And I think that's what drives me forward is people that I worked with in the past and that kind of saw something in me to to push me forward. Um, now we're in this restaurant, which is in, uh, in Galway, and it's an Italian restaurant. I mean, how, how much did you have to wiggle around to be able to do this? Because you, you what authenticity of Italian food do you know? I mean, I'm Italian, so I know. I mean, I, I obviously it's not something that I grew up with, you know, I'm I'm from Ireland, but I mean, I studied a lot and I'm actually just after coming back from Puglia myself, I was there for a week and I suppose just kind of because my sous chef is Italian and looking at, like doing research really and looking at what ingredients we can get fresh here in Ireland, obviously we, we aren't as blessed with the weather as we will be in Italy, but I mean, yeah, just a lot of research and getting feedback from the Italian staff as well. Um, I just want to, because um, our listeners like food porn, just can you kind of describe some of the food we ate tonight? Mm -hmm. So first of all, you started off with brisola, which was on a bed of rocket with parmesan and our own balsamic reduction. So everything that we make in, everything we make in house in our restaurant, like including our desserts, everything is handmade. Um, you also had the pomodoro bruschetta. 
So that's just um, our homemade focaccia bread, which we make every single day, toasted with um, roasted tomatoes, garlic, basil, and basil pesto. Then you guys had pan-seared scallops, so they're Irish scallops, they're hand-dived. You had a cauliflower puree, which is very, very creamy. There was a dehydrated black olive crumb, which adds, I think, nice texture and saltiness to kind of balance the sweetness of the scallops. Um, for You had a mixed-leaf salad as well. Then you had the cavatelli pasta. So the cavatelli is one of the most popular pastas that we serve. So it's with salsiccia sausage and duya, which is like a really nice spicy, spreadable. It's just, it's good. If you if you like spice, it's it's one of the best you can have. And that's with cavatelli pasta, tomato sauce and ricotta salata. So ricotta salata is salted ricotta, which is really, really nice. It's a really hard cheese. It's quite dense. And it's just, it's a really nice... Other than the saltiness it brings, it's a really nice contrast to the red of the pasta. Well, I mean, we, we just loved everything we had. Um, I'm, I'm still very curious about, like, what do you see in your stars for how you're going to progress with your career? I mean, the, I mean we know a lot of, of chefs that just want to have their own restaurant. Mm-hmm. We have a lot of um, chefs that want to do different things because they have families to whatever how about you what's your future i mean it's still very uncertain you know i'm i'm quite happy where i am and i'm You're like so where i know exactly i'm only 25 so i mean the you know the world is my oyster as they say but no i'm very happy where i am i'd love to stay in the Wicklow for as long as i can i think me and the owner have a very good balance of like me, my creativity but his expectation you know which is really really nice and I mean obviously I want more awards but again like who doesn't you know so <laughs> hopefully now we'll get, we get we actually got a, a really good award in November we got the best Italian from the, the food the food Oscars which is an, uh, like, was an honour the best so, Italian of what? the best Italian in Ireland yeah so we got that award in November um, that's kind of funny Award. I never would have thought anybody would do the best Italian in Ireland. That's great. Yeah. Well, just see, I suppose all of the the all of the kind of um, the categories are quite different. So you've best world food, you've best Italian, you've best casual dining. Like there's a lot of kind of broad, broad um, categories. So let's get it right. It's it's Il Vicolo, V-I-C-O-L-O. Yeah. It's right on the edge of beautiful downtown Galway. Yeah. So, so unless you're disabled like we are, you can walk here from almost anywhere in Galway. Megan Nolan, thank you so much for cooking for us. Thank you so much for slaking our desperate hunger. You're very welcome. And uh, please give our best regards to Jerry next time you see him. I will. And uh, what's the website? The website, if you just go into Google, just Google Ilviclo Galway. It's, I think it's ilviclo.ie. Um, also, you can make reservations at bookings at Ilviclo. Yeah. And, and we need to get out of here because the music is about to start. <laughs> yeah, we have a resident jazz band that plays every Sunday as well, so it's, it's, it's always a good night. Thank you so much for being a part of our day, and uh, we'll let you go back to work. Thank you very much, guys. It's lovely to see you, and I hope you enjoy the rest of your trip. I might actually see you on Monday and Tuesday. Good. I'm going to the food and the edge as well, so if I see you, I'll say hello. You're standing on my foot. 
I don't really know if Anne was st- st- standing on my foot or not. <laughs> <laughs> well, let's let's assume she was. But anyway, here's here's Katie Parlett, resident of Rome, visitor to Pittsburgh, with a new book out that she's going to talk to us about. She speaks, she writes, she does all kinds of things. She, you are an American um, transplanted to Rome, and you've lived there for how many years? 17. I'm rounding up by two and a half months, yeah, 17 years. <laughs> she must like it. It's pretty good. I'm into it. <laughs> um, she is the go-to for cookbooks about Rome, but she also does Rome on either and, and um, anything having to do with Italian on 10 million different magazines and, and websites. Uh, and she's produced these books. We're here for a signing of one of them, which we interviewed you before. <laughs> is um, It's called uh, The Food of, of, of... You have a distinction between South Italy and Southern Italy. Tell me what that is. Yeah, this is the first time I'm meeting you in person because we've chatted about the book. So six months later, after the original in- interview about food of the Italian South, we're face-to-face. And the distinction um, is merely the South is the Lower Peninsula, Southern Italy is that, plus Sicily and Sardinia. Um, both islands will be the subject of my next book, Food of the Italian Islands. Yeah, I told you about the guy we just interviewed who's doing <laughs> Sicily, which is my background, so I, I'm really interested in all this. Um, what made you throw in everything that you had ever been doing and move to Rome? Well, the only thing that I'd really been doing before that was uh, eating a lot of pizza, serving a lot of pizza, and studying art history. And I graduated from Yale with a BA in the history of art, with a focus in Roman antiquity, specifically funeral art of the second century, the Antonine period specifically. So I moved to Rome to continue my art history studies, but instantly was attracted to the food and wine culture and was really interested in how it diverged from my own Italian-American, Sicilian-Italian-American upbringing in New Jersey. So you're Sicilian as well? 50%. I think I'm 100. My grandmother used to talk about some uncle who was a doctor in Rome, but I think she was just trying to get classy. (laughs) I think I'm 100% Sicilian as well. Uh, 23 and me can confirm. <laughs> Good. Um, now, uh, we, we, we've talked about this book and it's on our archives, um, but you also have done other books. And the latest one we're going to talk about, how did you get into flour? Uh, I recently referenced my pizza fascination. <laughs> as I was always eating and thinking about pizza growing up. And then when I moved to Italy, started focusing on bread and pasta. Um, but the Flower Lab cookbook, which I wrote with Chef Adam Leonti, um, sort of came out of this more recent interest in freshly milled grains um, and the um, flavor and digestive potential that comes with using freshly milled flour, whether you obtain it from a mill. And there's so many in Pennsylvania. It's an exciting place to bake. Um, or whether you mill it at home with your own little mock mill attachment or tabletop mill, which is like a thing now. It's awesome. Um, I wanted to know, it's been about three years since we've been in Rome. Um, I have a very specific attachment to Rome. As you know, I told you I was married there. Yeah. <laughs> but um, 
last time we were there, there were some evidences uh, popping up with a little bit more non-traditional, more experimental cooking. Is that still going on? Yeah, I think that Rome is a place that people want to trap in amber, and it's romantic to think that everyone just eats at Osteria and Trattoria all the time. But Romans are curious eaters. They've been always been more adventurous than people give them credit for. Uh, there are some places that one would consider modern. Um, uh, not many of them are super delicious. They're often modern for the sake of being contemporary rather than a place that is producing a studied cuisine or one that is part of a natural evolution or one that is like frankly um, respecting its clientele um, and you know the litany of places that I think derive their menus from scrolling through their Instagram feed rather than going to study and stodge at places is like it's a, it's a list that grows ever longer well of course we, we agree on one kind of modern restaurant you like pinata right pardon we agree on that one restaurant you like, Pignetta. Oh, yeah. So, Pignetta has some cool modern stuff going on. Um, and, there's, you know, there's good modern things. And if you're in Rome for 10 days, like, for sure you're going to want a little break from Carbonara. Um, <laughs> but I think the things that Romans... Or Amatriciana, yeah. <laughs> yeah, I mean, it's your choice. If you want to go the Amatriciana route, Grecia, Payata, it's up to you. But I think, you know, the... The idea that you only have to eat at a trattoria or restaurant is a little outdated and, frankly, not Roman. Romans eat at home a lot. They cook at home a ton, and they eat a lot of snacks on the go. So snacking through Rome, whether it's on a soupli or a slice of pizza al taglio, um, that's a super satisfying way to feed yourself, and that's where I think the best food is right now. Uh, I wanted to ask you, have you noticed that you're on your second book tour, I think, right now, um, have you noticed that more and more people, uh, restaurants, are actually doing uh, house-made pasta? Yeah, I mean, for sure the idea of, like, making hand-rolled pasta is, it's been something that a lot of restaurants in the past embraced, especially because the Bolognese style of cooking was so popular. But I would say for over a decade, many places have been doing extruded pasta. So rather than using um, the sort of rolling pasta machine or rolling by hand, they're extruding shapes that are traditionally dried shapes, like spaghetti or candele or rigatoni. And, you know, that's something that is perhaps not even a decade old as something with critical mass. Um, and we talk a lot about that in the Flower Lab cookbook. Oh, I'm going to be really looking for that because, uh, yeah, I mean, I of course I heard that actually the the handmade stuff is more northern and the uh, the the dried extruded is more southern. Is that true? It totally depends. I mean, I would say that like hand formed pasta, like orecchiette and cavatelli, is more typical of of the south. Um, the type of flour that's available, the type of grains that are used in flour, determine ultimately the shape that can be executed. Um, but dried pasta has been a, a, a countrywide uh, thing for decades. It was part of a unification movement, like a strategic method of unifying Italy was to make people eat the same type of pasta. Oh, that's interesting. We could talk about that for a longer time, but I know you're, you're getting ready to sign books, so I'm going to let you go. Um, I hope to get to talk to you about this uh, um, the, the, um, the flower lab. lab. Yes, so maybe we'll talk about that next. All right. Thanks for having us. I'm so happy to have you and meet you face to face. Yeah, thank you so much for having me, and we'll talk flower next time.
okay. So, so Anne said, wrap that up. <laughs> and, and Peter says, boy, thank goodness for that. <laughs> a, a rather, a rather complicated, but I hope you've found interesting program and we'll be maybe less complicated or more complicated next week. <laughs> same time, same place. And in the meantime, bye bye. <laughs>